0: If you have a Bible, open to the book of Genesis. And we're jumping into this idea of the Knowing God series. Genesis chapter 4. And what really was the whole idea with the Knowing God series? The Knowing God series really was about this hunger that we all have to go deeper in our faith, to know God more. And, And it was really saying... Instead of talking about a bunch of these kind of other things out here, what if we just took and for a, a period of time did a series really on just how do I come to know God or know God more or have a greater uh, degree of intimacy with God? Just how do I deepen that connection of that fellowship with God? That's really the heart behind this series. And I I really want to come at it from what might seem like a well, it's, it's an old angle, but it's one that I don't think we talk about that often. And we see it begin here in Isaiah, or, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9, it's after Cain has killed his brother Abel. And God comes to Cain and he asks him this provocative question. He says, where's your brother Abel? And Cain replies, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Where's your brother Abel? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Um, there's something really interesting about questions, about asking questions. I've been realizing this a lot in my own parenting. We ask a lot of questions that we already know the answers to, right? Why is your, why is your room not um, picked up? Or is your room, uh, is your room picked up? It's like we know it's not picked up, but we're asking, is it picked up? Why are we asking if the room is picked up if we already know that it's not picked up? Does that make sense? Um, have you combed your hair? Well, we know they haven't combed their hair. Um, so why are we asking if they've combed their hair? There's something you do when someone has a duty or an obligation or a responsibility to do something, and they have not done it, they have not performed it, or they've done it wrong, And you ask that obvious question because you know that somehow in forcing them to talk about the obvious, there's a conversation that gets at truth more than if, just as the parent, you were to say, your room's not clean, your hair's not brushed, you killed Abel. Um, I want to go a little bit further because... I know that you killed Abel. I know that you haven't brushed your hair, that you haven't cleaned your room. I want to get at the heart here. What is going on in your heart that the thing that you were supposed to do or not do has actually happened? I left you in charge. Why is your sister crying? Right? I want you to be forced to have to have a conversation with me. Not just go the other way because it happened and you don't want to talk about it or you don't like that, that somebody's coming down on you or, or grieving you or, or picking at the scab of, of emotions. Um, no, we're going to talk about this. And I'm going to begin by asking you a question. Where's your brother? I know the answer. But Cain, where's your brother? And as I have reflected on this, I thought, man, this is really interesting. I want to teach on this. This idea of God asking us questions. Because I think when we talk about knowing God, we're always talking about how God's not answering our questions. Right? We're always talking about how God's not speaking to us or making himself known or not answering our questions, not responding to what we're, we're asking him. And maybe the question is reversed. Maybe God's the one asking us questions. And maybe he's asking them for a reason. I asked the staff this week at staff meeting, what are some questions that God would ask us? And they came up with a list. What are you afraid of? Why are you afraid? Are you afraid? What are your priorities Linda shared a story about being in the car, and um, as you can imagine, they have to set up the whole kid's wing every week. And she was feeling really frustrated, and, and she started praying, God, give us a building. All I want is a building. I want to set it up one time, come back to it two years later, and change a few colors, you know. Um, and she was it was such a righteous prayer. So she was telling us the story. So, so, so right motivated. So right in her intention. So, so right because look at all the work and suffering and sacrifice she puts into it. And God said to her, You're, you're praying the wrong prayer. You're praying the wrong prayer. Ask me to bring you workers. And I will. And what's amazing is, um, Youth Ministries has never run as smooth, as, smooth it is, uh, as it's running now. You met her team this morning, the amount of volunteers she has, the people that are serving. Um, but it was an interesting thing, and she kind of shared this with the staff. It's God asking, are you seeing this the right way? Are you seeing the right solution? What are you waiting for? Do you really want to hear me speak? Or do you want me just simply to say what you want? Are you hiding something? Are you living in truth? What's that behind your back? (laughs) Um, You see, God sees everything. God sees everything and so when there's something going on that affects the ability for us to have a relationship with God, God wants to have a conversation there about that thing. And if we're going to talk about knowing God, we have to learn how to have that conversation with God, the conversation that God wants to have, the one that will allow for us to be reconciled to God or for there to be truth. Psalm 10. Psalm 10. I'll just read the whole thing. But Psalm 10 says this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the scheme, the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. But all his ways uh, are always prosperous and his heart is haughty and your laws are far from him. And he sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'm all, I'll always be happy and I'll never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. And he catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed, they collapse, they fall under his strength, and he says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God, and do not forget the helpless. And he continues on. So the wicked think that God doesn't see. They live as if God doesn't see. We see this in Isaiah 29 as well. Isaiah 29, God says this of the people. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? So there's something really interesting going on here about um, this idea of what's in the open, what's... What are we going to put in the middle of a relationship? What's going to be true between two people? What's going to be common to us? And we begin to find out that secrets divide people. Things we hide divide people. Motives that are hidden from another person because they're not in concert with the other person. Those divide us. If we're, we're not trustworthy to another person and we know it in our heart... Or we know that we're breaking trust, but we're not letting them know it. That we're not equally yoked, or we're not heading the same direction. We don't have the same agenda, or goals, or love in, in, in concert with one another. That, that these things that are hidden, whether hidden in our hearts, or hidden within other pockets of people. That things that, that are not put on the table, that are not shared, that are not true, that are not harmonious, that don't agree that aren't integrous, those break relationship. They break relationship. And we have a whole country, I think, that is desperate for a relationship with God. We're desperate for a relationship with God. But we stand over here always asking God, why are you so far off? Why won't you meet me when I call for you? Why won't you answer me when I ask you these questions or ask for your help in certain things? And I think that all of scripture over and over and over again says that the problem really begins with our hearts and whether or not we're willing to have a purity of heart Before God, whether we're really willing to get on God's page with our motives, our agenda, our commitments to follow Him in truth and in light. That the problem begins with our commitment. The problem begins, another way of putting it, with our sin. Back to Genesis chapter 4, it says this. We'll back up a little bit before. Cain kills Abel, and it says this Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, this is Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Okay, we've we've debated as theologians for centuries, like what was it about Abel's sacrifice that was better than Cain's? I think the the simplest of all answers is to say, I don't really know. But what I know from the text is that God saw one set of circumstances and it was pleasing to him. And he saw another set of circumstances and it wasn't pleasing. Now, it doesn't matter uh, whether, whether it was the offering itself or the heart behind the offering my kids can both do sets of chores and I look at one when they're done with their chores and I can be pleased with it. The other kid can do their chores and I can look at it and say, yes, you did what you were supposed to do, but I'm not pleased. Why? Because the heart's different. okay? Or one did the chore I asked him to do, the other one did a chore, but it wasn't the chore I asked him to do. I, I don't know whether it was the sacrifice itself that bothered God or whether it was the heart behind it, but the point is, is Abel pleased God? The relationship worked. There was fellowship there. They they joined into that, and it brought them closer together. God was pleased. And what Cain did was something that was distasteful to God. It wasn't as clean or as as true as what Abel did. And God let Cain know, this wasn't this wasn't what I wanted. This, this doesn't make our relationship closer. And Cain got frustrated. If I tell one of my kids, I don't like how you did your chores, what's the natural human response? You ungrateful parent who embitters me. Why are you always coming down on me? Why you got to be so hard? Why you got to boss me around all the time? Don't you just see what I did? Didn't, didn't you just, you, you, surely you could have seen what I just did. And it's more than any of my friends, even my Christian friends, would have done. And you should be happy with what I did. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of little games a kid can play in that situation if a parent says, I'm not, I'm not pleased with this. And so Cain walks away and you can begin to see the bitterness in his heart and his face is downcast. And the Lord says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Verse 7 this is, this is really important. God says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? This isn't legalism. This isn't you have to be perfect to earn my favor or my salvation or my relationship. This is just a natural parenting thing that's like, listen, teenager. Don't you know if you do what's right, it'll be accepted? If if you do school the way you're supposed to do school, don't you know you'll get the grades you want, the opportunities to go to college will be there? You'll actually learn things that are going to help you later in life. Don't you know that if you treat your, your siblings well, that it'll help build unity in the family? Don't you know that that'll go over well? When I ask you to do something, if you do it at my level of expectation or higher, don't you know that I will honor you and and value and appreciate that and celebrate it and it'll it'll make me just so proud of you. Don't you know that if you do what's right, like it'll go well and it will be accepted. I mean, this isn't legalism. Do you understand that? That's just relational dynamics. If you join me and meet me in the middle with my expectations for you that are fitting and appropriate expectations for a parent to have with a child or a creator to have with his created, don't you know if you try to meet me in the middle with those expectations that all good things will come? This is a theme that goes all throughout Scripture Half of scripture, God says, if you obey, will it not go well with you? Will I not bless you and take care of you? Will I not send the rain and and bring the harvest and you'll have a bounty? And somehow we've gotten in the New Testament church, we've gotten down on the word obey. We've gotten down on the word obey. We're like, that's an Old Testament word. It's an Old Testament word. We live in in the era of grace and we don't find that our relationship with god is acceptable because of obedience anymore we find that it's acceptable because of grace right and what we begin to do is we say there's this there's no place for obedience anymore and i think there's something wrong there we are not perfect and christ gives us grace because we're not perfect so that we can stand boldly before the throne of God and know that He's not gonna judge our sin. And, and we're not perfect, meaning sometimes we're gonna get this wrong and we're not gonna obey correctly. But you know what? We can ask forgiveness. And because of grace, God will gladly forgive us. If my daughter says to me, Dad, I was supposed to do that, I got distracted, I forgot. Or you know what? I had bitterness in my heart and I took it out of my sister, and I know that grieves you. I'm sorry. You know what? Thank you for saying that. I forgive you. I accept you. I'll work with you. We can do this together. That's what grace looks like. But obedience is still every bit as present in the New Testament as it was in the Old Testament. What does Jesus command us to do? To love. To love. We're supposed to be obedient to the command to love. We're supposed to be obedient to the command to follow him. Take up your cross and follow me, says Jesus. Now, do we do that in grace? Absolutely. Absolutely. God gives us the grace, it's a sustaining thing. We do that. Do we do that somehow outside of obedience? Has obedience passed away or lapsed or or become irrelevant because we're doing this in grace? No, we're obeying in grace. We're obedient to this call or this command. We are following and there's, there's this, this rightness that is a part of this relationship. If I'm not going to be obedient to Jesus and follow him and, and pick up my cross, then I'm being disobedient, right? And that disobedience, what's the command to that all through the New Testament? repent just because there's forgiveness of sins and grace does that mean we stop repenting no that old testament category of repent is in the new testament too so john the baptist came repent and be baptized but that's still there when paul was preaching and everyone says what do we got to do to have this relationship with god and this grace and he says repent and be baptized repent means turn from doing it your own way And realize that if you follow Christ and seek to do what is right that you will have grace and forgiveness and all that you need to continue even when you get it wrong because you're not perfect. And it will go well with you because that's the promise. And we've lost sight of how to talk about obedience. And if we lose sight about how to talk about obedience, guess what we lose we lose sight about? How to talk about sin. Because if, if obedience doesn't really matter, then sin doesn't really matter, does it? And if grace is just cheap and, and we swim in it and, and we don't have to think about anything else, then um, it's like being in a constant bath. It doesn't matter to think about what's dirty. And Paul addressed this, didn't he, in Romans? When he says grace abounds so much and, and so he, he actually identifies the false question and says, so should you go on sinning more and more? Because there's so much grace, should you just sin? I mean, I I think the questions I get from from singles show that the church culture in America hasn't learned how to talk about this. Because we've talked about grace in such a divorced from reality or relationship way that twenty-somethings or single people are like, does purity really matter? I mean, does that really is that even relevant anymore? Please tell me it's not, because I know what I want the answer to that question to be. Because there's grace now. Have you not heard that there's grace? So shouldn't I? I mean, it doesn't really matter, does it? it? Doesn't really matter. And what I'm saying is. Well, it depends on if you want to have a relationship with God or not because it always matters if you're willing to seek God and obey Him in terms of the fellowship or the, uh, the intimacy that you're going to have with God. Because if you're not willing to seek God and obey Him, there's only one question God's asking you. Where are you? What are you looking at? What is it that you think you want? Where are your eyes? Where is your wife right now? What are you seeking for fulfillment? Because I know it's not me. And until we're able to have truth in this conversation, until we're able to have transparency in this conversation, I don't know that I can talk to you about your job or the promotion that you want or the raise that you'd like to get so that you have more money or finances, or you, you want to go overseas and do missions, what are you going to teach people? Am I supposed to go with you? I'm not even with you here. Genesis chapter 4. Why are you angry, Cain? Did I do something wrong? Did I not do my chores? Did I, did I do my chores with a bad heart? Am I the one that's getting bitter? Why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But listen to this. If you do not do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to bend or to tempt. It wants to devour you, to take you away from where you ought to be. But you must learn how to master that temptation. Here's the interesting thing about church in America. When we don't understand how to talk about sin or obedience but only grace, we talk about only justification. But we are saved in three parts. Justification. Sanctification and ultimately glorification. So I am am justified in Christ when he died for my sins, which means I can have this relationship with God where over the course of time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I grow up into Christ-likeness. In other words, I begin to become what I always should have been. I grow in maturity. I grow in health. And then ultimately, as that's happening, someday I'll be made like Christ. I'll be glorified when I stand in the presence of God. So justification, sanctification, glorification. When we say it's just grace, forget the rest, go do whatever you want, sin doesn't matter because obedience is somehow not a part of the New Testament, we're just talking about justification. We've lost sight of the fact that all of us, even if we're Christians, um, even if we're a really good Christian, there is temptation. There is sin. We have we have parts in our heart that are broken, and the Holy Spirit is wanting to work on those parts and fix those parts. Right? Isn't that just common sense? I think we we've divorced discipleship from our understanding of the New Testament. We've divorced growth. We've we've taken the, the passages out of the New Testament where Jesus talks about. Good fruit coming from good trees. That that's a natural thing. So if you do not do what is right, says God, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must master it. Jesus talked a lot about sin. He he comes to people that are sinning. And what does he say to them? The first thing he says in love to people who are sinning. Says, I forgive you. What's the second thing he says? Go and sin no more. He didn't just come say, "I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you." Like the goal wasn't forgiveness. The goal was the brokenness. Like I grieve that you're suffering in sin. I grieve that that keeps you from having the relationships you want with other people or with God or even with yourself because you loathe yourself. You're at odds with yourself. Your face is downcast. You have self pity for yourself. Your self is broken. All your relationships are broken relationship with God, self, others, and creation. I want to remake that justice, righteousness. I grieve that it's broken. I forgive you. There's grace. Let's start over. It's not just about the forgiveness. It's about the fixing. So I'm going to do my part. I forgive you. But go and sin no more. Paul, should we sin more and more because there's so much grace? Heavens know we shouldn't do that. The more we sin and the more we get grace, the more we realize we don't want that kind of brokenness. We're not going to find the right kind of life there or the kind of uh, respect for self or fellowship with others or relationship with God. And so we begin to say sin doesn't satisfy. I'm going to turn this way. Jesus says, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Paul says there's so much grace that you shouldn't want to sin. There's so much freedom, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather... Serve one another in love. Discipleship, following Christ, in obedience, understanding this command to love is not a self-seeking command. I cannot be selfish. I submit to him. I serve one another in love. It's all obedience. If you do this, if you do it as right, will it not go well with you? I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, will you not bear fruit? And I tell you this, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. I've come that you may have life and have life to the full. Obedience isn't some tyrannical thing. Look, do what is right. We understand this in all relationships. Certainly in the relationship with God, this holds true too, that we're disciples, we're disciples of Christ. We follow him through life in the day-to-day existence. We obey his command to love others and not to think of ourselves. And when we go away, there's more grace. And when we don't get it right, there's more grace. And in all of that, we're learning to do this better over time. Just like when we're practicing an instrument. Just like when we're learning mathematics. That when we do it and we care about it and we study it and we focus on it, we grow in discipleship. I don't become better than you. It's not about better than. I don't become more lofty and proud like I can look down on you. Actually, I become more tender like Christ would have me be And I see that you're suffering the effects of sin, and that doesn't give me joy in my pride. It breaks my heart and my desire for you to know the fellowship that's all about Christ-centeredness and God-centeredness and the joy that comes from that relationship like I do, and I want to serve you. I'll wash your feet if it would help you understand that you need to turn from where you're going because sin is crouching at your door and it's devouring you and it's taking you away from where you really want to be. I know that you want to know God because I once wanted to know God too. Now I know God. And so I, I, I really want you to come with me to do what is right, to seek what is good, to live justly and to know fellowship with God. I know that God is looking at you and he's just asking you a question. Why are you still here? Why are you not answering my question? It's been the same question for 20 years. I know I say it gently, but that's because I'm not going to shout you down. If we're going to get this thing right and you're you're really going to willingly follow and obey, you're going to turn, repent, and seek me, you have to choose that. I'm not going to shout you down. So my question is still the same whisper that it's been for 20 years, 15 years, 10 years. Ever since that broken relationship. Ever since that person took advantage of you. Ever since you were let down. Ever since you got it wrong and you suffered the consequences of getting it wrong. And instead of turning, you blamed me. And you played the victim. Wherever it started, ever since then, I've I've been right there. 24 hours a day willing to have this conversation. It's not that I'm being silent. It's not that I'm ignoring what you're saying to me. I'm just not willing to move off of step one because it all begins at step one. When I was in seminary, I had a professor that went and spoke at a well-known church down in Orange County. And um, you're not allowed to use the word sin down there. It's too negative. It's too harsh. It turns people off. And he came back and he just says, I don't understand how you can get anywhere or begin anywhere if you're not allowed to use the word sin. It's a really interesting thing. I had a professor in college who used to teach us, make sure you find a church that values scripture and Bible teaching. If you go somewhere and there's no scripture, then don't stay there. Go somewhere else. Because if there's no scripture, slowly over time, all the teaching will begin to sound a lot like what we want it to sound like. And it'll lose all of the prophetic or harsher elements of truth that forces us to evaluate our hearts and to maybe be broken to repent and to have to do the hard thing of turning away from what we think we want to do. I um, once had another pastor in college early on in my faith say, every decision you do in life, you're holding a permission slip. Every decision we make in life, something's giving us permission. It's okay to buy more because I have... I have... The resources. Or I think I can get the resources. Or it's okay to buy more because those other people bought more. Or it's okay to make fun of this person because guess what? Everyone makes fun of that person. Or it's okay to dabble in that area of pleasure. Um, We've kind of evolved to the point where culturally that's kind of acceptable. Or I know I, I can say I'm sorry after the fact. I have a mentor that sinned a lot. And then they said they were sorry. And now they're a great Christian. So I'm going to just sin a lot. And then um, I have permission to when I'm done. I've had my fill. Then I, then I can say I'm sorry. There's permission there. You know what I'm talking about? It's a scroll at all times justifying what it is we're doing. Giving us permission. Our mind is always looking for ways to permit us to do what we want to do. And that's the crazy thing about sin. Sitting at our door, crouching at our door, wanting to devour uh, us. It never looks sinister. It always looks desirable. Right? The sin that we engage, the the things we allow ourselves to do, that we give ourselves permission to do, or we give each other permission to do, those things are always going with the current or with the flow, or they give us that, oh, I'm glad I found a way to be able to do this, because I really wanted to do this. (sighs) The guilt is gone and I get to keep moving forward. It never looks like a, a fire breathing dragon. Sin never looks like, oh my gosh, that's scary. It always masquerades. It always looks desirable. It always entices, but in the end, it devours. The book of Proverbs speaks to this over and over and over again. Uh, Here's one proverb. It says this Rescue those being led away to death, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Rescue those being led away, enticed away to death. Hold back, like literally get in and be active in holding back people that are staggering towards slaughter. They're, they're just not getting it. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? They're not getting that. Obey and it will go well with you. They're not getting that and they're being led away to slaughter and they think there's this mirage. They think that it's everything they want. So we were in Santa Cruz a couple of weeks ago and Tamara took the girls, I was speaking uh, at a conference, and Tamara took the girls to this farm. And they were all at this farm, and they're hanging out there. And there's this sign, um, and it said, Laughter House. And so Tamara was, um, looked at that, she just laughed her house. And so she said to Mary Joy, see, we should be having a good time, and you should be happier than you are. And she's kind of like poking at her. And Mary Joy, you know, crossed her arms, and she said, Mom. It's a slaughterhouse. <laughs> and there's all these goats and lambs. And, and maybe it was like for kids. And so that maybe they got rid of it because they were like offending little kids. Kids were like, oh, no. Like, um, So it's like laughter house. Or maybe, I don't know, the Judas goat. You know, the goat that leads the other goats to the slaughterhouse. Like, you know, like a Far Side cartoon. You know, like the Judas goat is like crossing it out, you know, and, um, so that you can more easily lead the other goats to slaughter or whatever it is. This is the way it looks. It doesn't say slaughterhouse when we look at it the first time. Only upon reflection, only upon hearing God's word, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And going, you know what? That's true. I know that in my belly. I know that to be true, God. I'm sorry, as hard as it is, as awkward as it is, let's go have that conversation that, that we've been waiting to have for 20 years. I need to say I'm sorry for that. I need you to help me make amends for that. I don't know how to turn. I've been doing this so long that I don't know how to do otherwise. My character is shaped this way. So if I turn, I mean, can you begin to help me start creating a whole new habit set so that I might have character a different way someday. We have to be willing to hear the tough words of Scripture that obedience matters, following Christ matters. We get to do that in the love and the grace and the desire of God. Um, And the reason he says this to us is because of his love for us. So moving really quickly, Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33 says this The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, When I bring the sword against the land, and the people of the land choose one of their men and make them their watchmen. And he, says this, uh, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. And since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. And if I had to take warning, and if he had to take warning, he would have saved himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming, and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes the life of the of any one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will also hold the watchman accountable for his blood. What is this saying? It's like someone, it's a parable and then it goes into Ezekiel 34 where God's condemning the shepherds of Israel for not being good shepherds. And he's saying this, um, if you're sinning, then you're accountable for your sin. If you're a watchman on the wall, in other words, a shepherd, a leader of God's people, and you see that judgment is coming against sin, and you don't warn them, then you too will be judged. That'll be on your head. Jesus said to the leaders of Israel if you cause even one of these little ones to stumble in any kind of a way, it's better a millstone be thrown around your neck and you be thrown in the ocean than you suffer the judgment that's going to be coming to you. In other words, it matters. It really matters that people are able to bend into God and find the unity with God, the relationship with God that he desires for his kids. Anything that enables or puts scrolls of permission into people's hands so that they can walk away from God, treating God flippantly, angers God because that's an abdication or a perversion of spiritual leadership. Leaders in the church in America have to be able to talk about sin so that they can talk about grace, so that they can talk about relationship. Understand? This is the book that many of you are reading to go along with this series, um, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He says this. um, These are three quick quotes that I took in succession because I think it shows the heart of God. It says, By setting his love on human beings, God has voluntarily bound up his final happiness with theirs, God's happiness will not be complete till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And thus God saves not only for his glory, but also for his gladness. God desires God's joy like a parent. He wants to save and to give grace and to forgive so that we can be with him doing what is right, obeying, serving one another in love, that our joy and his joy would be together in this relationship and acceptable to him. Amen.